we have spent the last three weeks exploring some other things, and we've been off of the Gospel of John, but now we're back in it today. And this passage that we are going to come to today in John's Gospel marks a transition point in his Gospel. We've been exploring Jesus, we've been getting to know Jesus, we've been getting to know ourselves better as we've been getting to know Jesus, and we've been seeing him in his public ministry as he's been performing all of these signs, as he's been teaching out in the world. But now, as we enter into John chapter 13, we're moving into the last hours of his life. In fact, this passage that we're going to discover this morning, Jesus is in the upper room having the Passover meal with the disciples on the night before he's going to be crucified. And so Jesus' ministry now becomes very focused, very narrow, focused in on the disciples, and we're going to see him moving towards the cross and we're eventually going to see the beauty of the resurrection. So, with all of that in view, let's take a moment now to read John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning, and may he write the eternal truth and grace of that word upon all of our hearts. When I was growing up, my thing that I loved to do was to play baseball. I was a baseball player. It was what I really lived and died for, for much of my youth. And I had felt when I played baseball that I hadn't really played until I had gotten profoundly dirty. If, if I came home from a baseball game without a huge grass stain on my pants and dirt all over my jersey, I felt like I hadn't really given it my all. And so I loved to get dirty playing baseball. But I knew that I could come home after every practice and after every game and wash off and get squeaky clean. I didn't want to carry that dirt around with me everywhere that I went. I just wanted it for the context of the baseball field. Because it's just a game. Baseball is just a game. It's not real life. But in life, we know that it's not a game. Life isn't a game. The dirt that you pick up in the context of your life seems to go around with you a little bit longer than it does for the baseball player who washes off after playing a game of baseball. And you know what this is like. It, it chases you around. When you click the replay button of your life, and you look back at all of your life experiences, all of us, and I mean all of us, unless you are amongst the most self-righteous of all people, can look upon your life and you can see dirt and you can see grime and you can see brokenness 
and you can see sin, and no matter what attempts that you have made to try to wash it away by getting your act together and pulling your life in order, has not seemed to actually get rid of the dirt. It's still with you, and it accuses you. Maybe it's the affair that you had. Maybe it's some way in which you spoke that destroyed a relationship in your life. Maybe it's the gossip that actually came back to get you. Maybe it's how you failed as a husband or a wife or a parent. Whatever it is, you can look back on your life and you see these things. They, they accuse you, they confront you, and it's still hanging out with you. If that's the case, and it is the case for me, and I trust it is the case for you, if you can identify with that at all, there is some good news for you in this passage. And I'm telling you, there is some good news for you in this passage. You need what this passage, what Jesus is doing here, to come into the context of your life because it's the only way in which you're going to be able to stand clean. The only way. Because what Jesus does here when He comes and He washes the disciples' feet is that He enters into the context of our lives and He takes our, our dirt and our filth and our grime and our sin and He takes it upon Himself. He becomes dirty in our place and He gets down to the raunchiest parts of our lives and He cleans us up completely, squeaky clean, without a blemish anywhere. It's a beautiful thing. It's a picture of the Gospel. It's a picture of what Jesus has come to do. And so we see these disciples sitting around a table, eating a meal with one another, and it's important to take a moment to look into a couple of the disciples' life in order to understand how they're processing this, how they're dealing with who Jesus is here. And so let's take a look at Judas first. We need to zero in on Judas Judas, other than the devil himself, is to me the single most frightening person in the entire Bible. He, he scares me. In fact, he's more frightening in many respects than the devil himself because the devil's evil is so clear. It's so front and center in many respects. But Judas's evil is subtle. It's just a little capitulation here and a little capitulation there until we find that he ultimately ends up betraying Jesus. Judas would have been one of us. I mean, he, he was one of the disciples. He was with Jesus throughout his entire public ministry. He was in Jesus' inner circle. He heard all of Jesus' sermons. He saw all of Jesus' miracles. He was in charge of the money, which means that someone in that group of people must have thought that he had the integrity and the trustworthiness to handle that. He had studied under Jesus Christ himself. He knew the theology. He knew how it should be lived. So no doubt he actually would have been able to teach people with faithfulness as to who Jesus was, and he followed Jesus even in the midst of times when it was unpopular and, and unpersonally healthy for him to do so. He was, by all intents and purposes, amongst the most dedicated of the dedicated followers of Jesus Christ. And so I look at him, and then I look at my own life as an ordained minister in a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing, 
Christ-exalting church and denomination. Someone who's been to seminary, who preaches the Word, I hope, very accurately, who administers the sacraments, who shepherds the church. I see that in myself. And then I look at you, and I think about you, and I think about you as someone who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as someone who takes the Lord's Supper, who's been baptized, who's stood before the congregation and taken membership vows that espouse that you actually believe the Gospel as it is portrayed in Scripture, and that you are endeavoring to live as, as becomes that, And so I look at your life and I look at my life and I wonder, what in the Sam Hill difference is there between myself and Judas? What is the difference between you and Judas? Because Judas would have been one of us. He would have been sitting in this church had he been in Biloxi in 2010 rather than in Israel 2,000 years ago. That's where he would have been. This is a guy who betrayal of Jesus Christ is so profound in the eyes of the Gospel writers that they can never mention His name without mentioning the fact that, oh, by the way, this was the one who betrayed Jesus. They can't separate that from who Judas was. It's like Hitler. You don't think of Hitler and go, hmm, I wonder what his economic policies were. I wonder what Hitler thought about education and the environment. You don't think about that. The only thing that crosses your mind when you think of Hitler is he was the one that instigated the Holocaust. So you don't even care what he thought about all that other stuff because the evil that was so acute in his life is just inseparable from who he was as a person. And the same is true of Judas. It was so subtle though. So subtle. Judas gave all the outward appearances of being one who loved Jesus. But he didn't love Jesus. He didn't ultimately believe in Jesus. His sins had not been washed away. And that's who we're confronted with, this Judas in this Bible. And so I wonder how we can know whether we're the real deal or whether we're fakes like Judas. Well, that's one person who betrays Jesus, but he's not the only person who betrayed Jesus, is he? he? There's another one, and it's Peter. And we're going to discover here that Jesus says that Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. That is ultimate in betrayal, that he's going to deny Jesus three times, and we're going to read in a few weeks when we get to John chapter 18 that that actually happens, that he denies Jesus. So what is the difference between Judas and Peter? I mean, we know from reading Scripture that Judas is in hell and Peter is in heaven. That Judas's betrayal was not met with forgiveness and that Peter's was. So what's the difference here? We, we had a neighbor across the street growing up. His name was Peter. I've never known anybody whose name was Judas. That's child abuse. You don't name your child Judas, but people name their child Peter. So what's the difference here? Here's what I think it is. Judas felt remorse because of what he had done to himself. But Peter felt remorse 
because of what he had done to Jesus. You see the difference there? There's a world of difference between the two. Judas defined sin as something that he did or failed to do that interrupted his quality of life, that damaged his reputation, and that told him that because his quality of life and his reputation was damaged, that his life was no longer worth living. And he never embraced the forgiveness and grace of God. But Peter is someone who understood sin as being something that he did or that he failed to do that not only failed to show love to his neighbor, but offended the only holy and true God that there is. That he, because of that sin, justly deserves the wrath of God. And yet, this Jesus Christ, who he betrayed, is the same one who's going to forgive him who's going to reconcile him to the Father, who's going to pour out just gobs and gobs of love and grace upon him. And so he runs to Jesus rather than running away from Jesus. That's what he does with his sin. See, Judas, his sin exposed him as a traitor. And he had docked his ship at the port of his reputation. And that reputation got ruined And he went out and hung himself because he said and believed that his life was no longer worth living. In the parlance of Scripture, that's called idolatry. It's idolatry. If you want to know what your idols are in this life, you need to look at your life and think about the important things to you that are so important that if they were stripped from you or if you lost them, you would personally think that your life was no longer worth living. At all. Whatever those things or those people are, whatever they are, those are your idols. Those are the objects of your worship. Those are the things that define you as a person. And it's easy to pontificate about all of this from a distance. It's easy to... to do this from a distance when you're not in the muck of it right now, but maybe you know what it's like to have done something to where your sin was publicly exposed, or at least it was exposed to a small group of people, and you saw that sin for what it was, for being as ugly as it was, and you know what the shame of that was like. You know how it felt physically. You know how the ugliness of your sin being exposed to other people actually makes you want to vomit. That's what this is like. I was talking with a, another pastor in another PCA church in a land far, far away just the other day. And he told me that one of the best things that could happen for one of the elders of his church would be for him to be caught with loads and loads of pornography all over his computer. That seems wildly counterintuitive, but I knew exactly what he meant. I knew exactly what he meant by that. Because by having his sin, something so gross, exposed like that, it would cause him to either run from the fellowship of the church, run from the grace of God, run from Jesus Christ and cover up and hide. Or, it would cause him to say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I claim. It would cause him to run to Jesus. 
It would cause him to see that he is a ginormous sinner and that Christ is so full of grace and so full of love that even for the worst of sinners, even for the people who do the grossest things, the most vile things, that God's grace is sufficient for all who will stop trusting in their own merits and start trusting in Him. And then from that point, that elder would be able to minister to people, not from a posture of his self-righteousness, but from a posture of the righteousness of Christ credited to him from a posture of his own weakness rather than a posture of his own native strength. He would be able to see that he's not so different from Paul who said that he is the chief of sinners, but that the power of God was made perfect in his weakness. That's what would change in each one of our lives. If we saw our sin for what it was and we stopped running away from Christ from it and running away from God's people with it and we started running to him and laying ourselves before Him, laying our our souls bare before Him, and enjoying the forgiveness of God in that. As, As long as I am the pastor of this church, for as long and as much as I can help it, no one, no man will ever, ever become an officer in this church who has not come to see the gravity of his sin, and come to experience and know the grace of God to him in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who has come to personally know that. It will never happen unless that person has come to, at least in some sense, really come to grapples with that. Because the only other option is for that person to minister out of pride. To to engage with people from the posture of self-righteousness, to stand up before the people and say, I've got it together and I'm going to tell you how I've got it together and how you need to get your act together. That's pride. That's nonsense. And it's not the gospel. The gospel says, we are great sinners who have a Savior who has come to pour out grace upon us by getting to the nitty-gritty of our life to where he actually bows down and washes our grimy, nasty, disgusting feet. That's the gospel right there. And that changes your life. It changes your life when you get that. It changes your life. Our neighbor next door, growing up, you're getting the neighborhood talk today. Our neighbor next door was a podiatrist. I mean, that's a gross job. I I thought that it must take a wildly peculiar person to decide that when he grew up he was going to look at people's bunions all day long and corn toes and ingrown toes. I mean, it's just a gross, heinous job. Bless his heart for doing that. But if you rewind the clock 2,000 years, you'll notice a culture that didn't have... 21st century American notions of public sanitation that didn't enjoy paved roads, that the mode of transportation were animals who you know what they did on the side of the road, and people who walked with open-toed shoes, sandals. And so whenever they would come into someone's house for a dinner party, they would have to have their feet cleaned the person hosting the party would have a servant who would clean the feet of their guests 
who had been out in all of this grossness and all of this grime. But here's what you need to know about that servant. The servant who would clean the feet of people who had come to the dinner party was never a Jewish servant because it was too lowly, too humiliating and dehumanizing for a Jewish servant to do that. And so they would hire a Gentile servant to clean people's feet. It was something that was designated for the lowest of the low people in all of society. And so we read what we read in our call to worship about what Jesus has come to do, that he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by washing the disciples' feet, by washing our grime, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. That's the humiliation that Jesus is willing and glad to bear in order to clean us. He's entering into the context of the disciples' filth and he's making the disciples' filth his own. And he's becoming dirty so his disciples could become clean. And friends, that's what the gospel is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. If you get nothing else, I want you to go home with that today, that Jesus takes our sin, takes our dirt, takes our filth, takes our ugliness, and he owns it for himself. And so when we receive him through faith, he cleans us up. He cleans us up, makes us sparkling clean. And through this ongoing cycle of repentance and faith and dependence and renewing grace that comes to us through his word, through his people, through his sacraments, we get the ongoing grace of God that we need to go out and live the Christian life. And it's good news to us. It is the good news. So before we go this morning, I want to just give you a couple of practical hooks that you can take with you because this has got to make a difference when the rubber meets the road of your life later on this week. Here's the first thing that I want you to take with you. First thing you need to recognize is that you are never going to get clean until you first admit that you're dirty. How's that for the Captain Obvious moment of the day? You're never, ever going to get clean until you come to see that you're dirty. And it means that you stop trusting in your goodness anymore. And you stop trusting in your church membership. You stop looking at the people who you've experienced in this past week and who you will experience upcoming who will do stupid things and annoy you and where you, and where you stop saying, I would never do anything like that because that's untrue. You would do something like that. You would do something like that. You add the right ingredients to your life and you would do something like that only probably even worse. We all would. You stopped doing that and you come to Jesus like the tax collector came to Jesus and you beat your chest and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you take it. You take that grace. You take that mercy. That is why we say that if you have yet to receive that mercy, not to come and take the supper. If you think that you can do life independently from Christ, not to come and take this wine and this bread this morning. And the reason why is because it's hypocrisy. 
It's performing an action that you don't actually believe. Because what you need to believe in order to receive this gospel, what this is a sign of, is to acknowledge your dirt, acknowledge your sin, and acknowledge that the one whose body was given for you and whose blood was shed for you is the only one who can clean you from that. That's what we need to see. You've got to admit you're dirty. Here's the second thing. You have to, as the great hymn says, pour contempt on all of your pride. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. In verse 8, Peter says, that Jesus should never wash his feet. He wasn't going to allow the king of kings to do something as nasty as that. But Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. He's saying that if, if Jesus does not encroach upon Peter's life and wash his feet and wash his soul, then Peter will not enjoy salvation. There's no hope for him. And there's no hope for you and there's no hope for me apart from that. Many people resist coming to Jesus and maybe you're one of them. Maybe you're one of them. Many many of us resist coming to Jesus because it means that we're going to have to admit that we're dirty. It means that we're going to have to admit that we have some kind of acute need in our life that we cannot fix or meet on the basis of our own merits. Do you know why Jesus said that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of an old lady's needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because the rich man thinks that he has all of his needs provided for. He can provide for any need that he has for his life. He just goes out and buys it when he has a need. But he's trying to get us to see us to see that we're actually poor, whether we are rich or not. He's coming to us and trying to get us to see our poverty so that by our poverty we'll recognize our need, we'll recognize our dirt. People in poverty, people who are homeless, see their dirt. They see their filth. They see their need. And we're the same. And we run to Jesus, the one who can supply that need for us. Here's the last thing. Last thing that will be done. If you're the person who has admitted your dirt and has admitted your guilt and you now know the deep, deep love of Jesus that is yours in the gospel, then as you go out into your life, you don't cheapen it by living as if the gospel were a ho-hum experience. You don't do that. You don't cheapen the grace of God by going inward and detaching yourself from other people and looking at people in this church or in life and judging them on ridiculous things like the basis upon which they're dressed or what they do for a living or upon how old or young they are or whatever else it is. You don't love people on the basis of how thankful they are for you or how appreciated you feel. You don't, you don't engage with people like that because the reality is, is that we can never perfectly reciprocate to God the love that He has bestowed upon us in the gospel. And so what we do is we go outward. 
We get out of ourselves. We go toward other people. We love one another. That's how the world will know that we are Christians. They'll know that we are Christians by our love, especially as we love one another in the church. And we love for no other reason than that Jesus came and he loved us when we were completely unlovable. Jesus did not come and pour out saving love upon Darren Stone because he's just got it all together. And he didn't do that for you either. He did it just because he is who he is. He is gracious. He is loving. And for some crazy reason, he decided to pour that out upon us. And so it means that we give up our self-interest and our personal comfort and we move towards one another. We serve one another. We listen to one another. We actually care enough to listen to one another. We bear each other's burdens. We lay down our lives for one another in this church in a way that, at least in a little bit of a way, begins to look like how Jesus laid down his life for us. That's what the gospel does. It changes our relationships. It changes the way in which we engage with people. And I'll tell you what, First Pres, if we are so humbled by our sin and so filled up with his grace, and we respond to that grace by loving each other in such a deep way, people around this city are going to see us and they are going to say that surely God is in this place. And I'm praying that that would be so. Let's come before him now in prayer. Lord, the, the world will know that we are your disciples by our love for one another. And we will love one another to the degree that we know that we have been loved by You. Not because of our goodness, but despite our ugliness. Father, do such a deep, deep work of grace at the level of our souls that we taste and see that You are good. That we savor Your mercies to us in the Gospel. And let it change us how we engage with one another and how we do life in this world so that other people would see that You are beautiful, worthy of worship, worthy of bowing the knee to. We ask that this would happen for the sake of our joy and for the sake of Your glory. And we ask it all in the name of Him who came such a distance for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.